Peter writes to this group. He has a primary message here for his hearers in the book uh, or in this letter, and his his message is this: trust, trust the Lord. Do all that God has called you to do. Obey him, no matter what the circumstances. Keep your eyes fixed on him, on the plan that God has for you, for it is better than the plans that you have for yourself. And he says this, he encourages his hearers with this, because the people who are hearing this, this this group of churches that this letter is going to, they're all experiencing difficulties and hardships, and they're all wondering, like, what are we doing? Like, is this, is this really worth it? Or is there, is there some meaning behind this? And it's easy, I think, for each of us to come up with excuses, much like I'm sure that these churches were coming up with, to say, well, you know, you don't really know the things that I have to deal with. You don't really know uh, the struggles that I have. You don't know, you know, really even the very practical things. Like, it's, it's really, things are really hard for me because I have a, a difficult schedule or I have, you know, I don't have as much resources as others. Or uh, There's a lot of different ways that we come about making excuses for time, energy, efforts. There are lots of ways uh, that we, we try to help people understand where we're at, but really it's, it's not an explanation, it's an excuse. And Peter's exhortation to these churches is to trust the Lord and to obey no matter your circumstances, no matter the situation that you are dealing with. Because Jesus is greater, is worth more, is more precious than anything that you could hope to pursue. Beyond that, he has provided you the ability to accomplish that which he has called you to. You know, when we live, we we live in a time right now where there is much uh, conversation and talk there is much uh, discussion about injustices in the world, and there is much that we speak about in terms of uh, a lack of equity amongst peoples regarding finances or uh, maybe social standing or political standing. And there are some uh, truths to these things, but the, true, the truest thing is that Jesus has made himself available completely, fully, to every single person. And so while you might be experiencing some difficulties, some hardships, you might be experiencing some injustices, or there might be uh, problems with equity in your lives or the lives of people that you know, The truth of the matter is that Jesus has made himself available to you to give you all that you could ever hope, want, or need. He desires to give all to all. 
And so our focus to get through these times, to, to live, as Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've learned how to be rich. I've learned how to be poor. I've learned how uh, to, to abound. I've learned how to live in, in prison. I've learned how to live in palaces. Paul's, uh, his exhortation is this. I have run the gamut of spiritual experience, of practical experience, but yet the secret is contentment in Christ and Christ alone. And this is what Peter's trying to help us understand, what he's trying to help uh, his people understand, his hearers understand, is that although there are hardships and difficulties, although there are persecutions or oppressions that you may be experiencing, Jesus is all in all. Jesus is everything. And so if you're saying, well, you don't really know the circumstances, the situations, what you're really saying is that you don't really know what you have. Or you're not taking advantage of the things that Jesus wants to give you, that he's provided already for you. This is what Peter is getting at as he begins his section here in chapter 2. He's made this declaration that God's people ought to be like God. Makes sense. He says in verse 22 of chapter 1, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. That is there, meaning that he, uh, that Christians have come to faith. They have believed the truth of the gospel. That you and I are more worthless than we could ever realize, but we are loved more deeply than we could ever understand. We do not have this uh, innate loveliness about us, but we are instead lovely because Jesus loves us. There's nothing that made him be like, oh, well, you, you know, I see like a diamond in the rough there. You could be pretty good. <laughs> there, there was nothing that we had to offer him, but yet he just so patiently and, and consistently loved us. So much so that even when we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us. This is the love that God shows. And he says, now we ought to love one another with this sincere brotherly love. Love one another from an, uh, earnestly from a pure heart. And then we come down to verse 4, where we pick up this morning. This is what it means to come to him to believe the truth of the gospel, to become a part of his family. And he's beginning to sketch this out, this new identity that is for his people. Because the group of people that he's writing to are looking around at their circumstances and their situation and saying like, you know, it's really difficult, it's really hard, there's a lot of people who are after us, there's a lot of people who hate us, things aren't easy. And here he writes this. To encourage them. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, as we first come to this section, we hear the words, a living stone. Now, this, of course, refers to Jesus. Jesus is uh, this stone that is 
this, this living stone that we're, we're, we're told about here, uh, because it's, it's, it's rooted in the resurrection. This is Jesus is alive, and stones aren't typically alive, but it's saying he's this foundational piece. He's a foundational piece of life. In John's gospel, Jesus says this. After raising Lazarus from the dead, he, he sees that Lazarus is in trouble. Lazarus dies. Lazarus is put into the tomb. Three days later, you know, Jesus like makes his way out there and he's like, you know, hey, what's the deal? Lazarus is, is dead and everyone's all mad and like, oh, you should have come sooner. And Jesus just calls him out and Lazarus is, uh, he's raised to life. And after that, Jesus, he, he simply says this. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the claim that he makes. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that because I take things uh, very literally. It's, It's one of those things about superlatives. There can only be one best. There's there's a good, better, and best. The greatest, there's only one greatest. There's only one who can claim this spot. And if Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what he's in fact doing there is saying that he is the greatest, he is the best, and so that there is nothing that can challenge him. When he says that I am the greatest, I am the resurrection. I am the life. When he says these things, he's making the exclusive claim that you will not find life or resurrection anywhere else. He owns it. He is king over life, king over resurrection. No one can say, well, you can find life there. You can seek resurrection here. Jesus says no one can even offer that because I have claimed every single aspect of that. And for you and I, this is important to understand because this means you're wasting your time if you go looking for that somewhere else. You're wasting your time. Jesus already claimed it. He himself is the resurrection and the life. This is how he claims to be the living stone. He is the life. Stones aren't typically alive, but he is so foundational. His claim about who he is is so foundational that he is a a living stone. He is alive. He is this foundational corner piece of this structure. Now we find that two things characterize this, this living stone. First, we see that we're told in verse four that the living stone is rejected by men. Now, this is not the first time that Peter has made reference to Jesus in this manner. And it's not the first time that that Peter has even come to to reference this Old Testament scripture. Where this comes from, this idea of being a stone, is is actually rooted back in the Old Testament. But in Acts chapter uh, 4, when Peter's kind of giving this big speech, he looks to this section... And he refers to Christ's death, his resurrection, and his exaltation by the Father. 
Peter highlights this to say, there are those who have rejected this living stone. In Acts chapter 4, if you want to flip over there, you can read with me. Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter is communicating here to this group of religious leaders. He's just ready to call everybody out. And he says this, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And then he gets to verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter makes the same emphasis here to this group. That Jesus is the stone, that he is rejected by these religious leaders who are called the builders, and that Peter outrightly calls Jesus this cornerstone. He makes the declaration that there's no salvation apart from this cornerstone. Now, I want you to see this. This will be foundational for the end. How Peter begins this, of what it looks like to reject, what it looks like to be someone who is rejecting, rejecting God, rejecting this cornerstone, we find just a, a brief snippet in verse 10 here of Acts 4, where Peter is saying this, Let it be known to you, to all of you, he says, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, Right, so there's two things that are happening here. God is making a way for salvation through Christ, through this path of Christ coming and living the perfect life on our behalf. It was God's will, we're told, in, uh, in Isaiah that he would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our sake. By his stripes we would be healed. It would be God's will to carry out this wrath upon not you and I, but upon his own son. Now, at the same time, we are also told here that it is this group of people who have chosen to crucify the Lord, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it is their fault. It is them who have come to the place where they have decided we don't want him. We don't want him. Now, God was accomplishing his will, his work through this path, but there was also this path of mankind making this decision choice to reject Christ outrightly. Flip over to Matthew chapter 21. We look at another section here. If you've ever read this section, uh, there is a parable that is told here by Jesus. The parable 
of uh, these tenons. Now we bring this up because first we've seen how Peter has handled this passage, uh, you know, about the chief cornerstone that was rejected. Uh, they're both referring back to this section in Psalm 118. Here's how Jesus handles it. In Matthew chapter 21, picking up in verse uh, 33, here's what we hear from Jesus. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other, other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And, the, <clears throat> and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard, vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the, a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. You see, Jesus takes Psalm 118. He takes this section about the cornerstone being rejected, and he applies it to himself. He says there are those who are walking in this vineyard. They are thinking that they are doing the work that they ought to be doing, but when they see what is required of them by the master, then they seek to get their own way. Jesus says, these people, they begin to scheme and they say, oh, here's the heir. If we kill him, then we can have his inheritance. We can have what, what belongs to him. Jesus tells them, when you do this, this is what it looks like to reject the cornerstone. But his emphasis is this. It was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's work. He accomplished it in this specific way. Although the son of the master is killed, what happens? Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This speaks, of course, to the resurrection of Christ. He was struck down, but instead of 
staying dead, he resurrected, defeating death, conquering sin, crushing Satan. The death of Christ is not the last word. We have more chapters after. We see the resurrection. And he becomes the foundational piece for this new creation, this new people, this new house. First, we see that this stone, a living stone, is rejected. Secondly, we see that it is, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It's not rejected, but chosen and precious. Now, this is important for us to understand because what Peter's saying here is you're either going to be in this camp where you are rejecting or you are recognizing rightly that Jesus is God's plan, that he is the, the uh, greatest treasure that you have been given, and that he is to be precious to you. This is the pattern for which we are to look to Christ. Just as Christ was persecuted, hated, just as Christ was suffering, just as uh, Peter's readers are hearing this, these men and women who are being oppressed, they can look to Christ who has also suffered, but yet whose identity, being so found in obedience to the Father, brought us life. And through his resurrection, we are justified. Through this same pattern, we can then also suffer with Christ and give God glory through the way that we suffer well. Peter continues in verse 5 and says, now he's turning his attention from this living stone to us Christians as living stones. In verse 5, he says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now we have this comparison between a living stone and believers as living stones. Now, this is similar to what Jesus speaks out in uh, John 15, where he says, I am the vine and you were the branches. We are connected, therefore, and so we begin to bear fruit as we are connected to the source of this vine. We are connected to the source, the, the, the root structure. We are connected to the, the, the place of life, and so the branches begin to, to flourish as the result of this connection. Here, we see that Christians, you and I, are living stones because of our faith in the resurrected Christ. When we are brought into his family, we are carefully constructed, brought about into a place of every piece being put in its proper spot to serve the function of the structure. Christ is this foundational piece, the cornerstone. Now I'm, I'm not sure if you know uh, if you know what a cornerstone is. If you've, if I, I, I'm really into architecture and like buildings and like how things work like that and laying out spaces, uh, so I've done a fair amount of of reading on this. But th this is how it essentially works out. When you clear out a plot of land and you you think you're going to build and you you ready it, 
you have to find something by which you uh, measure everything out, that you can put everything to scale based off of one specific spot. Because you're kind of primarily designing, you know, you have your your plans and your, your blueprints out there, but you need to start somewhere. And so you measure out your space, you figure out about how much it's going to take up, and you lay out the function and how it's going to, uh, how it's going to be um, oriented on the plane that you're building on. And you, you measure things out, and then when you begin, you take this one stone, the one beginning stone, the corner of the building, and it is set there first. And off of that, everything else is measured. You can run lines and you can, now they do like lasers and crazy stuff, but you can run lines and, uh, and measure everything off of that in relation to the corner of this cornerstone. It is the, the thing that directs the building of the entire structure. How rooms are built on the second, third, fourth floors are all dependent upon the placing, the foundational nature of this cornerstone. This is what is being said of Christ. We are all in our proper place, but only on the basis of being in relationship to Christ, being these spiritual, these living stones, a part of this spiritual house. Now, this is the only section where we are described as living stones. But throughout the New Testament, there are other places where we are described as God's house or being mem- members of the household of faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Moreover, in Hebrews chapter 3, Verse 6, we read, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The writer of Hebrews there says, We are his house if we hold fast, if we stay in relationship to that cornerstone. If you decide you're going to go off on your own, then all of a sudden the building starts to break. You have to stay in relation to the cornerstone. And so it is that we see that this is a spiritual house. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Now, it's easy for us to read over that and be like, oh, yeah, spiritual. That means like, you know, not physical. But it, it means that in the most literal sense, a spiritual house, it is the third member of the Trinity. God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers. It's a spiritual house because God's people are indwelt with His Spirit. So it's a spiritual house. He gives us the will, the desire, the ability to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to serve Jesus. This spiritual house 
is this new temple, this new manifestation of God with his people. Now, this is important for us to understand because there used to be a physical house, a physical house of God, a physical temple. Right? We have these stories all throughout the, the scriptures of, of Solomon and, and David and you know all these old kings who are, who are wanting to build God a house. And Moses has built these tabernacles. And there, there's always been this drive to have God dwelling with his people and a place for God to, to be worshipped. But now, on the other side of the cross, as the result of Jesus' work, we are now this spiritual house. As the Holy Spirit indwells you and I. We are God's dwelling place. More than that, we are also, we're told, a holy priesthood. We will get into this more deeply next week. Uh, but here, the idea, I just want to communicate this to you quickly, is this. A priesthood. This is talking about a class of people. Now, when we hear this, we think, oh, a holy priest. It's not an individual job. This is a corporate call. All of God's people are a part of this new people, this new relationship, this new way that they relate to God. Now, previously, you had to relate through a priest. You had to go and you had to bring your sacrifice uh, you know, to the temple, and you would go there and you would hand it off, and then the priest would go inside and he would do his thing and you know, come out. And he would have, like, the relationship with God. But now, it is not only the responsibility of all of God's people to rightly relate to him as a corporate body, but individually, that means you have to handle your own business also. You have to do what you are called to do. And if you're not doing it, the other priests around you, you and all these people in this room are going to look over and be like, you need to do your job. It's a serious calling because you have an opportunity to relate to God directly that was made possible through Christ's work. Now the purpose of the holy priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These sacrifices, we'll, we'll definitely dig into this deeper next week also, but generally speaking, this is about the entirety, the entirety of the Christian life. All Christians are to offer spiritual sacrifices and do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual sacrifice. You have to offer it in spiritual power. Through the Holy Spirit. Now, essentially, this is really just a, a, a real junk drawer sort of way to be like, everything that you do is spiritual. And closes off all the loopholes for us saying like, oh, well, like, you know, like, oh, where I sit, where I sit for lunch every day, that's not a spiritual act. Really? If you are a spiritual creation, if you are, are a being that is in relationship with God, everything that you do, the way that you relate to him, every consideration is an opportunity to know, enjoy, and give God glory. Every single thing. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. Through him, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Just a real generalized way that the writer of Hebrews communicates. Continually offer up sacrifices. Frequency, continually. Sacrifices of praise, right? That's one class that he says there of spiritual sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Communicating who he is. Doing things with the motive that would bring him glory. And then we're told just a very practical thing. Do not neglect to do good. Like that's just a very like, if it's within your ability to do good, do it. And God is glorified. Share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I love this one. 10, 30, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, right? Because that's the first place where we're like, oh, it doesn't really matter what I eat or what I drink. Like, that's not, I just got to like get some food. So, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Nowhere in there does it say do some of those things, do a little bit of those things, do the things that stick out to you very obviously. Do all to the glory of God. Every single thing. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Like, that's the most all-encompassing statement there. From the very practical, daily, I've got to eat, I've got to drink, or whatever you do, everything's in. All to the glory of God. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we participate in this way? Well, he goes on, Peter goes on in verse 6, and he gives us this reasoning. And he roots it back to an Old Testament scripture. Again, he's citing this. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. He, he cites it here in, in verse 6. He says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Right? There's those words again. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, Peter's emphasis here is God has done this work. He is doing this work. He is deserving of praise. He is one that we ought to give glory to because he has appointed Christ. This is God's initiative. The entire building takes its shape from Christ. And if we are living stones, if we are members of this household of faith, you are only that on the basis of how you relate to Christ. And then again, we see these words, chosen and precious, an emphasis again and again and again that this is God's plan and it is beautiful. It is precious. Not precious in the sense that it's like, oh, you know, we've got to be really careful with that, but precious in the sense that you would guard it with your life. You, you would give anything to protect this. 
He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When you trust in Christ for salvation, you will experience some hardship, some difficulty, some suffering, much like these readers of Peter's letter experienced. But just as Christ was not put to shame, he was raised, he was exalted by the Father. He says, if you believe in him, just as Christ was the chosen one, the honored one, uh, that he was exalted at his resurrection, so Christians also will be glorified on that last day together. There will be no embarrassment, there will be no uh, shame that is given, but rather God will look upon you and see Christ's work on your behalf and you will see that you were accepted and you will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. This is what Peter's getting at here. If you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. So it's an honor, we're told, verse 7, for those who believe. It's an honor Now, conversely, we find that for those who do not believe, verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They will face shame. They will face dishonor on this last day. Because what will happen is it will be revealed that Christ is the cornerstone, that there will be a fullness of understanding, and there will be a revelation that this work is good and true, but was rejected. Rejected by the builders. Again, Peter cites Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. Jesus and Peter both take this this psalm and they insert it into the gospel narrative to demonstrate that there is a work that is being accomplished. There is a work that is being accomplished through this cornerstone. And that there are these two responses to it. That there is one way to believe and not be put to shame. And that there is a way that the builders reject the stone. Peter brings out a little bit more of the meaning in verse 8. And he says this. This is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those who disbelieve, who don't believe this truth about Jesus, they stumble over the stone. They stumble over Christ because they refuse to believe, they refuse to obey. This is what Peter tells us. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
they fall over, they become disobedient to the word, the truth of the gospel. But how Peter communicates it is this. He doesn't say, oh, like they they accidentally didn't see it. He says they absolutely did see it, but they disobeyed. They were presented with the truth, what was right to do, what was right to believe, the right way to act, the right, right way to respond to who Christ is, but yet they disobey the word. There is a rebellious act being brought forth here because they do not want to submit to the lordship of Christ. They want to come up with excuses and say, like, well, that's not really the way that we wanted to do it. That's not the way that we should live. We really prefer this other way. And this, this, this uh, disobedience, it comes about because... They want to be in the place of God. All disobedience comes about because you fail to trust God, to trust that his promises are true. When you do something that is against his will, when you don't obey his commands, it's because you're not trusting his plans. You're not trusting who he is. And so these people who stumble, who disobey, they are those who will be crushed by this cornerstone. Now, we come to a little bit of a a phrase that can kind of be a little bit difficult here, and um, I want to address it just real briefly, but it, it, it bring you a little bit of insight here. It says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, as we come to this, uh, we come to this description here where it sounds like, oh, like these people, like they didn't really have like a choice. Like they basically had to do this. And this is the circumstance that they were in. Like they were destined to do this. And like there's no way that they could get out of it. Uh, and, And as we've talked about this sort of thing in the past, what we've said is this is one of the very many points in the Bible where there's always a tension that we have to maintain. There's always a tension that uh, comes about that the scriptures teach. And in our modern day rational thinking uh, in this kind of enlightenment, uh, post-enlightenment era, the way that we think about it is everything has to square up perfectly. Uh, but for the scriptures, there's often tensions that can exist. There's tensions that can exist. One of these here uh, is, it kind of looks a little bit like we're beginning to speak about election, that God picks some people to be a part of his family. And as we think about that, we would say, absolutely, like that's what the Bible says. But then the Bible also says in other places that you should pick God. It never reconciles them completely, but it says that there is a responsibility that you have to choose to walk with Christ, to choose to hear the gospel message and respond. But then there are also sections where it says that God has chosen you to be a part of his family. And these things are not uh, in conflict with one another, but rather they reflect different aspects of theology and God's character. 
They, resp- they reflect different aspects of God, uh, God's plan. This is why when Peter, like we mentioned earlier, back in Acts chapter 4, if you want to look back there with me, back in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you in all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now, in one aspect there, there is a responsibility that mankind is being held accountable for their actions. They are the one who put Christ to death. It is their fault. These men and women who rejected Christ, who heard his words and they rejected him. But then we also read in the scriptures, it was the will of the Father that he would be crushed for our iniquities. It was God's plan that he would, that, that Jesus would pay the price for our sins. And so there are two things happening there. It was God's will that Christ died, but it was also these people who are being held responsible. These two things run parallel to each other. They're not in conflict with one another. It is both our responsibility to choose to walk with Christ, to want to know him more, to pursue him, but it's also God's work here where he is saying that there are many who will reject him and they will disobey the word. Now, this, in short, makes it to where these people have rejected, rejected the truth of the gospel. They've rejected God. They are responsible for their choices. The writers of Scripture never, they never exempt uh, mankind from responsibility, but yet, at the same time, always say that God is sovereign over all things and that he ordains all things. And it's one of those tensions that we kind of have to, to, to learn to live with. It's never all one way or all the other. You know, this is how, uh, this is how we get like, all these different camps of different ways people think about things, theological perspectives. But the scriptures overall, they don't resolve how these themes fit together, how these two camps fit together. They call us to responsibility, but yet at the same time say that God rules and reigns over all things. Now, you're not God, so then it's your responsibility to do what's within your power to do. You walk with Christ. You choose him. You hear that there are those who are rejecting the truth that Christ is the cornerstone. It is your responsibility today to hear that truth and say, I believe that he is the cornerstone and I am a living stone that is a part of his family. I am a living stone that is a part of his household. This is our responsibility. You do what is within your power to do. Now, a final word here regarding this. This kind of also puts us in a place sometimes where we're like, okay, well, like, I'll do what I, what I wanted to do, but like, still doesn't like sit 
sit like that great with me about some of these things. That's fine. But you can also know this. As you're thinking about that in the back of your mind, the scriptures over and over and over tell us that when you were building hate in your heart, when you were amassing an army, when you were pursuing ways to attack God, he was well aware that you were doing that and gave his own life for you when he didn't have to. And so God's ultimate character, his revealed character, is love. And so there doesn't have to be this conflict in your mind about like, well, I don't really know how that works out. It's okay if you don't know how it works out. What you do know is that when you didn't, when you were far from him, when you were his enemy, he laid down his life for you. He's already proven his love, his care, his concern for all of mankind. The scriptures tell us he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is why he laid down his life. And so it is that as we look at this, he invites this group of people into his family. And as we'll see uh, next week, his people then become an evangelizing people and they become a worshiping people. This is the, the things that characterize his church. Telling other people about him and inviting them to come and know the king because the king is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for drawing us near. And Lord, we want to, to take this opportunity to respond and worship now. Lord, we want to take this opportunity to say thank you for bringing us into your family. Lord, we are happy to be uh, members of the household of faith. Lord, we see that, that you are this cornerstone the, that everything is built on. And Lord, we want to, uh, to come to you empty-handed. We want to come to you open and willing for you to work in our lives. And Lord, we want to, uh, as we were reading there in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, Lord, we want to find ways in whatever we're doing, whether food or drink or in anything else, to give you glory. We want to relate to you as the, as the cornerstone. Lord, we we confess this morning that, that you are the resurrection and the life. That apart from you, there is no resurrection. Apart from you, there is no life. And so, Lord, we, we say thank you. We give you glory. Lord, we ask that you would cause our hearts now to respond in thanksgiving and worship and praise. We love you. Amen.